starting now. Black Clock Audio Tales, May 2019, Hawaiian Folklore and Legends, edited by Daniel Spitzer, music by Kevin McLeod. Help the show by sharing, rating, liking, or five-star giving wherever you listen to or rate podcasts. Support the show by hitting the patron button on pgttcm.podbean.com or by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm. And don't forget to visit pgttcm.com. Brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Check out their new Dino Sound Slippers. Is that the name? They roar every third step. Very cool. Recording by Annalisa Bodker. Hawaiian Legends of Ghosts and Ghost Gods by William Drake Westervelt. Chapter 4. Kalo Eke Eke, the Timid Taro. A myth is a purely imaginative story. A legend is a story with some foundation in fact. A fable tacks on a moral. A tradition is a myth or legend or fact handed down from generation to generation. The old Hawaiians were frequently myth-makers. They imagined many a fairy story for the different localities of the islands, and these are very interesting. The myth of the two taro plants belongs to South Kona, Hawaii, and affords an excellent illustration of Hawaiian imagination. The story is told in different ways and came to the writer in the present form. A chief lived on the mountainside above Hokina. There his people cultivated taro, made kapa cloth, and prepared the trunks of koa trees for canoes. He had a very fine taro patch. The plants prided themselves upon their rapid and perfect growth. In one part of the taro pond, side by side, grew two taro plants, finer, stronger, and more beautiful than the others. The leaf stalks bent over in more perfect curves. The leaves developed in graceful proportions. Mutual admiration filled the hearts of the two taro plants, and resulted in pledges of undying affection. One day, the chief was talking to his servants about the food to be made ready for a feast. He ordered the two especially fine taro plants to be pulled up. One of the servants came to the home of the two lovers and told them that they were to be taken by the chief. Because of their great affection for each other, they determined to cling to life as long as possible and therefore moved to another part of the taro patch, leaving their neighbors to be pulled up instead of themselves. But the chief soon saw them in their new home and again ordered their destruction. Again they fled. This happened from time to time until the angry chief determined that they should be taken no matter what part of the pond they might be in. The two taro plants thought best to flee, therefore took to themselves wings and made a short flight to a neighboring taro patch. Here again their enemy found them. A second flight was made to another part of South Kona, and then to still another, until all Kona was interested in the perpetual pursuit and the perpetual escape. At last there was no part of Kona in which they could be concealed. A friend of the angry chief would reveal their hiding place, while one of their own friends would give warning of the coming of their pursuer. 
At last they leaped into the air and flew on and on until they were utterly weary and fell into a taro patch near Waiohinu. But their chief had ordered the emu, cooking place, to be made ready for them and had hastened along the way on foot trying to capture them if at any time they should try to alight. However, their wings moved more swiftly than his feet so they had a little rest before he came near to their new home. Then again they lifted themselves into the sky. Favoring winds carried them along, and they flew a great distance away from South Kona into the neighboring district of Cow. Here they found a new home under a kindly chief. Here they settled down and lived many years under the name of Kalo Eke Eke, or the Timid Taro. A large family grew up about them, and a happy old age blessed their declining days. It is possible that this beautiful little story may have grown out of the ancient Hawaiian unwritten law, which sometimes permitted the subjects of a chief to move away from their home and transfer their allegiance to some neighboring ruler. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Legendary Canoe Making Some of the Hawaiian trees have beautifully grained wood and at the present time are very valuable for furniture and interior decoration. The koa is probably the best of the trees of this class. It is known as the Hawaiian mahogany. The grain is very fine and curly and wavy and is capable of a very high polish. The koa still grows luxuriantly on the steep sides and along the ridges of the high mountains of all the islands of the Hawaiian group. It has great powers of endurance. It is not easily worn by the pebbles and sand of the beach, nor is it readily split or broken by the tempestuous waves of the ocean. Therefore, from time immemorial, the koa has been the tree for the canoe and surfboard of the Hawaiians. Long and large have been the canoes hewn from the massive tree trunks by the aid of the koi puko, the cutting stone or adze of ancient Hawaii. Sometimes these canoes were given miraculous powers of motion so that they swept through the seas more rapidly than the swiftest shark. Often the god of the winds, who had special care over some of the high chiefs, would carry them from island to island in a canoe which never rested when calms prevailed or stopped when fierce waves wrenched but bore the chief swiftly and unfailingly to the desired haven. There is a delightful little story about a chief who visited the most northerly island, Kauai. He found the natives of that island feasting and reveling in all the abandon of savage life. Sports and games innumerable were enjoyed. Thus day and night passed until, as the morning of a new day dawned, an unwanted stir along the beach made manifest some event of great importance. The new chief apparently cared but little for all the excitement. The king of the island had sent one of his royal ornaments to a small island some miles distant from the Kauai shores. 
He was blessed with a daughter so beautiful that all the available chiefs desired her for wife. The father, hoping to avoid the complications which threatened to involve his household with the households of the jealous suitors, announced that he would give his daughter to the man who secured the ornament from the far-away island. It was to be a canoe race with a wife for the prize. The young chiefs waited for the hour appointed. Their well-polished koa canoes lined the beach. The stranger chief made no preparation. Quietly he enjoyed the gibbs and taunts hurled from one to another by the young chiefs. Laughingly he requested permission to join in the contest, receiving as the reward for his request a look of approbation from the handsome chiefess. The word was given. The well-manned canoes were pushed from the shore and forced out through the enrolling surf. In the rush, some of the boats were interlocked with others, some filled with water, while others safely broke away from the rest and passed out of sight toward the coveted island. Still, the stranger seemed to be in no haste to win the prize. The face of the chieftain grew dark with disappointment. At last the stranger launched his finely polished canoe and called one of his followers to sail with him. It seemed to be utterly impossible for him to even dream of securing the prize, but the canoe began to move as if it had the wings of a swift bird or the fins of fleetest fish. He had taken for his companion in the magic canoe one of the gods controlling the ocean winds. He was first to reach the island. Then he came swiftly back for his bride. He made his home among his new friends. The Hawaiians had many interesting ceremonies in connection with the process of securing the tree and fashioning it into a canoe. David Maho, a Hawaiian writer of about the year 1840, says, The building of a canoe was a religious matter. When a man found a fine koa tree, he went to the priest, whose providence was canoe-making, and said, I have found a koa tree, a fine, large tree. On receiving this information, the priest went at night to sleep before his shrine. If in his sleep he had a vision of someone standing naked before him, he knew that the koa tree was rotten and would not go up into the woods to cut that tree. If another tree was found and he dreamed of handsome, well-dressed man or woman standing before him, when he awoke, he felt sure that the tree would make a good canoe. Preparations were made accordingly to go into the mountains and hew the koa into a canoe. They took with them as offerings a pig, coconuts, redfish, and awa. Having come to the place they rested for the night, sacrificing these things to the gods. Sometimes, when a royal canoe was to be prepared, it seems as if human beings were also brought and slain at the root of the tree. There is no record of cannibalism connected with these sacrifices, and yet when the pig and fish had been offered before the tree, Usually a hole was dug close to the tree and an oven prepared in which the meat and vegetables were cooked for the morning feast of the canoe makers. 
The tree was carefully examined and the signs and portents noted. The song of a little bird would frequently cause an entire change in the enterprise. When the time came to cut down the tree, the priest would take his stone axe and offer prayer to the male and female deities who were supposed to be the special patrons of canoe building, showing them the axe and saying, listen now to the axe. This is the axe which is to cut down the tree for the canoe. David Mallow says, when the tree began to crack, ready to fall, they lowered their voices and allowed no one to make a disturbance. When the tree had fallen, the head priest mounted the tree and called out, smite with the axe and hollow the canoe. This was repeated again and again as he walked along the fallen tree, marking the full length of the desired canoe. Dr. Emerson gives the following as one of the prayers sometimes used by the priest when passing along the trunk of the tree. Grant a canoe which shall be swift as a fish to sail in stormy seas when the storm tosses on all sides. After the canoe had been roughly shaped, the ends pointed, the bottom rounded, and perhaps a portion of the inside of the log removed, the people fastened lines to the canoe to haul it down to the beach. When they were ready for the work, the priest again prayed, O canoe gods, look you after this canoe, guard it from stem to stern until it is placed in the canoe house. Then the canoe was hauled by the people in front or held back by those who were in the rear until it passed all the hard and steep places along the mountainside and been put in place for the finishing touches. When completed, pig and fish and fruits were again offered to the gods. Sometimes human beings were again part of the sacrifice. Prayers and incantations were part of the ceremony. There was to be no disturbance or noise, or else it would be dangerous for its owner to go out in his new canoe. If all the people except the priest had been quiet, the canoe was pronounced safe. It is said that the ceremony of lashing the outrigger to the canoe was of very great solemnity, probably because the ability to pass through the high surf waves depended so much upon the outrigger as a balance which kept the canoe from being overturned. The story of Laka and the fairies is told to illustrate the difficulties surrounding canoe making. Laka desired to make a fine canoe and sought through the forest for the best tree available. Taking his stone axe, he toiled all day until the tree was felled. Then he went home to rest. On the morrow, he could not find the log. The trees of the forest had been apparently undisturbed. Again he cut a tree, and once more could not find the log. At last he cut a tree and watched in the night. Then he saw in the night shadows, a host of the little people who toil with miraculous powers to support them. They raised the tree and set it in its place and restored it to its wonted appearance among its fellows. But 
Laka caught the king of the gnomes and from him learned how to gain the aid rather than the opposition of the little people. By their help, his canoe was taken to the shore and fashioned into beautiful shape for wonderful and successful voyages. Laukai'i Waipo Valley, the beautiful, precipices around it, the sea on one side, the precipices are hard to climb, not to be climbed, are the sea precipices, Hawaiian chant. Kaki, the white one, and Kaholo, the runner, were the children of the valley, their parents were the precipices which were sheer to the sea and could only be passed by boats. They married, and Kaholo conceived. The husband said, If a boy is born, I will name it. If a girl, you give the name. He went up to see his sister, Pokahai, and asked her to go swiftly to see his wife. Pokahai's husband was Kaukini, a bird catcher. He went out into the forest for some birds. Soon he came back and prepared them for cooking. Hot stones were put inside the birds, and the birds were packed in calabashes, carefully covered over with wet leaves, which made steam inside so the birds were well cooked. Then they were brought to Kaholo for a feast. On their way, they went down to Waipuyo Valley, coming to the foot of the precipice. Pokakahi wanted some sea moss and some shellfish, so she told two men to go on while she secured these things to take to Kalo. She gathered the soft lipoa moss and went up to the waterfall to Ulu, Kaholo's home. The baby was born, wrapped in the moss and thrown into the sea, making a shapeless bundle, but a kupo sorcerer saw the child was there. The child was taken and washed clean in the soft lipoa and cared for. All around were the signs of the birth of a chief. They named him He Lawi, and from him the Waipo waterfall has his name, according to the saying, Falling into mist is the water of He Lawi. Pokahi took up her package in which she had brought the moss and shellfish, but the moss was gone. Hina Ulu Ohia, Hina, the growing Oha tree, was a sorcerer who took the child into the Lipoa moss. She was the Omakua, or ancestor goddess, of the boat builders. Pokahi dreamed that a beautiful woman appeared her body covered with the leaves of Ohia trees. I know that you have not had any child. I will now give you one. Awake and go to the Waipuo River. Watch 30 days, then you will find a girl wrapped in soft moss. This shall be your adopted child. I will show you how to care for it. Your brother and his wife must not know. Your husband alone may know about this adopted girl. Pokahi and her husband went down at once to the mouth of the river, heard an infant cry in the midst of red-colored mist, 
and found a child wrapped in the fragrant moss. She wished to take it up, but was held back by magic powers. She saw an ohia tree rising up from the water, branches, leaves, and flowers, and iwi, birds, coming to pick the flowers. The red birds and red flowers were very beautiful. This tree was Hina. The birds began to sing, and quietly the tree sank down into the water and disappeared, the birds flying away to the west. Pokahi returned to her brother's house, going down to the sea every day, where she saw the human form of the child growing in the shelter of that red mist on the surface of the sea. At the end of thirty days, Pokahi told her friends and her husband that they must go back home. On their way, they went to the river. She told her husband to look at the red mist, but he wanted to hurry on. As they approached their house, cooking odors welcomed them, and they found plenty of food prepared outside. They saw something moving inside. The trees seemed to be walking as if with feet of men. Steps were heard, and voices were calling for the people of the house. Kaukini prepared a lamp, and Pokahi, in a vision, saw the same fine tree which she had seen before. There was also a hala tree with its beautiful yellow blossoms. As they looked, they saw leaves of different kinds falling one after another, making in one place a soft, fragrant bed. Then a woman and man came with an infant. They were the god Ku and Hina, his wife. They said to Po Kahi and her husband, We have accepted your sacrifices and have seen that you are childless. So now we have brought you this child to adopt. Then they disappeared among the trees of the forest, leaving the child. Lau Ka Ee, leaf of the Ee vine. She was well cared for and grew up into a beautiful woman without fault or blemish. Her companions and servants were the birds and the flowers. Lau Ka Pali, leaf of the precipice, was one of her friends. One day she made whistles of tea leaves and blew them. Leaf of the morning glory saw that the young chiefess liked this, so she went out and found Pupa Kani Oi, the singing land shell, whose home was on the leaves of the forest trees. Then she found another Pupa Hina Hina Ula, shell beautiful with rainbow colors. In the night the shell sang and their voices stole their way into the love of Lao Ka Ee. So she gently sang with them. Nohu Upali, a fern, one of the old residents of that place, went out into the forest, and hearing the voices of the girl and the shells, came to the house. She chanted her name, but there was no reply. All was silent. At last, Pua Ohilu, the blossom of the Ohilu, one of the flowers in the house, heard, and opening the door, invited her to come in and eat. Nohua Uapali went in and feasted with the girls. Lau Ka'ii dreamed about Kaualoa 
the setting of the sun at Lihui, a fine young man, the firstborn of one of the high chiefs of Kauai. She told her her kau guardian all about her dream and the distant island. The kau asked who should go to find the man of the dream. All the girlfriends wanted to go. She told them to raise their hands, and the one who had the longest fingers could go. This was Pupu Kani Oi, the singing shell. The leaf family all sobbed as they bade farewell to the shell. The shell said, Oh, my leaf sisters, Lau Koa, leaf of the Koa tree, and Lau Anu, leaf of the paper mulberry tree, arise. Go with me on my journey. Oh, my shell sisters of the blue sea, come to the beach to the sand. Come and show me the path I am to go. Oh, Pupu Moka Lau, the land shells clinging to the Moki Hana leaf, come and look at me, for I am one of your family. Call all the shells to aid me in my journey. Come to me. Then she summoned her brother, Makani Kau, chief of the winds, to waft them away in their wind bodies. They journeyed all around the island of Hawaii to find some man who would be like the man of the dream. They found no one there, nor any of the other islands up to Oahu, where the singing shell fell in love with a chief and turned from her journey. But Makani Kau went on to Kauai. Ma Ili Ili, the dragon woman of Hia, tried to persuade him to stop, but on he went. She ran after him. Lima Loa, the dragon of Laiwai, also tried to catch Makani Kau, but he was too swift. On the way to Kauai, Makani Kau saw some people in a boat chased by a big shark. He leaped on the boat and told them he would play with the shark, and they could stay near but need not fear. Then he jumped into the sea. The shark turned over and opened its mouth to seize him. He climbed on it, caught its fins, and forced it to flee through the water. He drove it to the shore and made it fast among the rocks. It became the great shark stone, Koa Mano, warrior shark, at Hyena. He leapt from the shark to land, the boat following. He saw the hill of fire throwing, a place where burning sticks were thrown over the precipices, a very beautiful sight at night. He leapt to the top of the hill in his shadow body. Far up on the hill was a vast number of iwi, birds. Makani Kau went to them as they were flying towards Lihua. They only felt the force of the winds, for they could not see him or his real body. He saw that the birds were carrying a fine man as he drew near. This was the one Lau Ka'ii desired for her husband. They carried this boy on their wings easily and gently over the hills and sea toward the sunset island Lihua. There they slowly flew to earth. 
they were the bird guardians of Kawilona. And when they traveled from place to place, they were under the direction of the bird sorcerer, Kukalaakamanu. Kawilona had dreamed of a beautiful girl who had visited him again and again. So he was prepared to meet Makani Kau. He told his parents and adopted guardians and bird priests about his dreams and the beautiful girl he wanted to marry. Makani Kau met the winds of Nihau and Lihua and at last was welcomed by the birds. He told Kawilona his mission, who prepared to go to Hawaii, asking how they should go. Makani Kau went to the seaside and called for his many bodies to come and give him the boat for the husband of their great sister, Lau Kaii. Thus he made known his mana, or spirit power, to Kawalona. He called on the great cloud gods to send the long white cloud boat, and it soon appeared. Kawilona entered the boat with fear, and in a few minutes lost sight of the island of Lihua and his bird guardians as he sailed out into the sea. Makani Kau dropped down by the side of a beautiful shell boat, entered it, and stopped at Mana. There he took several girls and put them in a double canoe, or Awaolau, spirit boat. Meanwhile, the sorcerer ruler of the birds agreed to find out where Kawilona was to satisfy the longing of his parents, whom he had left without showing them where he was going or what dangers he might meet. The sorcerer poured water into a calabash and threw into Lehua flowers, which floated on the water. Then he turned his eyes toward the sun and prayed, O great sun, to whom belongs the heavens? Turn your eyes downward to look on the water in this calabash and show us what you see therein. Look upon the beautiful young woman. She is not one from Kauai. There is no one more beautiful than she. Her home is under the glowing east, and a royal rainbow is around her. There are beautiful girls attending her. The sorcerers saw the sun pictures in the water and interpreted to the friends the journey of Kawilona, telling them it was a long, long way, and they must wait patiently many days for any word. In the signs he saw the boy in the cloud boat, Makanikau in the shell boat, and the three girls in the spirit boat. The girls were carried to Oahu, and there found the shell girl, Pupukanaoi, left by Makikau on his way to Lihua. They took her with her husband and his sisters in the spirit boat. There were nine in the company of travelers to Hawaii. Kauilona in his cloud boat, two girls from Kauai, Kai, a girl from Oahu, three from Molokai, one from Maui, and a girl called Lihau. Makakani Kau himself was the leader. He had taken the girls away. On this journey, he turned their boats to 
Kahu Lei to visit Kamohu Ali, the ruler of the sharks. There Makakani Kau appeared in his finest human body, and they all landed. Makakani Kau took Kailona from his cloud boat, went inland, and placed him in the midst of the company, telling them he was the husband for Lau Kaii. They were all made welcome by the ruler of the sharks. Kamoho Ali called his sharks to bring food from all the islands over which they were placed as guardians. So they quickly brought prepared food, fish, flowers, lays, and gifts of all kinds. The company feasted and rested. Then Kaimoho Ali called his sharks to guard the travelers on their journey. Makani Kau went in his shell boat, Kauilona in his cloud boat, and they were all carried over the sea until they landed under the mountains of Hawaii. Makani Kau, in his wind body, carried the boat swiftly on their journey to Waipio. Laukaii heard her brother's voice calling her from the sea. Hina answered. Makanikau and Kaiwolona went up to Waimea to cross over to Laukaii's house, but were taken by Hina to the top of Mauna Kea. Poihu and Li'nau saw the two fine men and called to them, but Makanikau passed by without a word to his own wonderful home in the caves of the mountains resting in the heart of mists and fogs and placed all his travelers there. Makanikau went down to the sea and called the sharks of Kamoho Ali. They appeared in the human bodies in the valley of Waipio, leaving their shark bodies resting quietly in the sea. They feasted and danced near the ancient temple of Kahuku Welo which was the place where the wonderful shell Kahapu was kept. Makani Kau put seven shells on the top of the precipice, and they blew until sweet sounds floated over all the land. Thus was the marriage of Lao Kaii and Kawalona celebrated. All the shark people rested, soothed by the music. After the wedding, they bade farewell and returned to Kahulawi, going around the southern side of the island, for it was counted bad luck to turn back. They must go straight ahead all the way home. Makani Kau went to his sister's house and met the girls and Lau Kaii. He told her that his house was full of strangers, as the people of the different Kupa bodies had assembled to celebrate the wedding. These were the Kupa people of the Hawaiian Islands. The Ipa people were more like fairies and gnomes and were usually somewhat deformed. The kupas may be classified as follows. Kapo Kino Lao, the people who had leaf bodies. Kapo Kina Pua, the people who had flower bodies. Kapo Kino Manu, the people who had bird bodies. Kapo Kino Lao, 
trees of all kinds, ferns, vines, etc. Kapokino pupu, all shells. Kapokino au, all clouds. Kapokino makani, all winds. Kapokina ia, all fish. Kapokina mau, all sharks. Kapokina limu, all sea mosses. Kapokina pokaku, all peculiar stones. Kapokina haiwa haiwa, all dangerous places of the pali. After the marriage, Pupa Kani Oi, the singing shell, and her husband entered the shell boat and started back to Molokai. On their way, they heard sweet bird voices. Makani Kau had a feather house covered with rainbow colors. Later, he went to Kauai and brought back the adopted parents of Kawilona to dwell on Hawaii, where Lau Ka'i'i lived happily with her husband. He Lawi became very ill and called his brother Makani Kau and his sister Lau Ka'i'i to come near and listen. He told them that he was going to die and they must bury him where he could always see the eyes of the people and then he would change his body into a wonderful new body. The beautiful girl took his mallow and lays and placed them along the sides of the valley where they became trees and clinging vines and Hina made him live again. So he Lawi became an Aumakua of the waterfalls. Makani Kau took the body in his hands and carried it in the thunder and lightning burying it on the brow of the highest precipice of the valley. Then his body was changed into stone, which has been lying there for centuries. But the ghost was made by Hina into a kupua, so that he could always appear as the wonderful misty falls of Waipio, looking into the eyes of his people. After many years had passed, Hina assumed permanently the shape of the beautiful Ohaya tree, making her home in the forest around the volcanoes of Hawaii. She still had magic power and was worshipped under the name Hina Ula Ohaya. Makanikau watched over Laukai'i, and when the time came for her to lay aside her human body, she came to him as a slender, graceful woman, covered with leaves, her eyes blazing like fire. Ma Kani Kau said, You are a vine. You cannot stand alone. I will carry you into the forest and place you by the side of Hina. You are the ii vine. Climb trees. Twine your long leaves around them. Let your blazing red flowers shine between the leaves like eyes of fire. Give your beauty to all the Ohio trees of the forest. Carried hither and thither by Makani Kau, great wind, and dropped by the side of splendid tall trees, the ii vine has for centuries been one of the most graceful tree ornaments 
in all the forest life of the Hawaiian Islands. Makanikau, in his spirit form, blew the golden clouds of the islands into the light of the sun, so that the rainbow maiden, Anui, might lend her garments to all her friends of the ancient days. Kahuhu, the shark god of Molokai. The story of the shark god Kauhuhu has been told under the legend of Ikana Ka, man-eater, which was the ancient name of the little harbor Puku, which lies at the entrance to one of the beautiful valleys of the island of Molokai. The better way is to take the legend as revealing the great man-eater is one of his most kindly aspects. The shark god appears as the friend of a priest who is seeking revenge for the destruction of his children. Kamalo was the name of the priest. His hiu, or temple, was at Kaluaha a village which faced the channel between the islands of Molokai and Maui. Across the channel, the rugged red-brown slopes of the mountain Iki were lost in the masses of clouds which continually hung around its sharp peaks. The two boys of the priest delighted in the glorious revelations of sunrise and sunset tossed in shattered fragments of cloud color and rejoiced in the reflected tints which danced to them over the swift channel currents. It is no wonder that the courage of sky and sea entered into the hearts of the boys, and that many deeds of daring were done by them. They were taught many of the secrets of the temple by their father, but were warned that certain things were sacred to the gods and must not be touched. The high chief, or Ali, of that part of the island had a temple a short distance from Kaluaha in the valley of the harbor which was called Aikanaka. The name of this chief was Kupa. The chiefs always had a house built within the temple walls as their own residence to which they could retire at certain seasons of the year. Kupa had two remarkable drums which he kept in his house at the hue. His skill in beating his drums was so great that they could reveal his thoughts to the waiting priests. One day Kupa sailed far away over the sea to his favorite fishing grounds. Meanwhile, the boys were tempted to go to Kupa's hue and try the wonderful drums. The valley of the little harbor Aikanaka bore the musical name Mapu Lihu. Along the beach and over the ridge hastened the two sons of Kamalo. Quickly they entered the hue, found the high chief's house, took out his drums and began to beat upon them. Some of the people heard the familiar tones of the drums. They dared not enter the sacred doors of the hue but watched until the boys became weary of their sport and returned home. When Koopa returned, they told him how the boys had beaten upon his sacred drums. Koopa was very angry and ordered his mu, or temple sacrifice seekers, 
to kill the boys and bring their bodies to the hue to be placed on the altar. When the priest Kamalo heard of the death of his sons, in bitterness of heart he sought revenge. His own power was not great enough to cope with his high chief. Therefore he sought the aid of the seers and prophets of highest repute throughout Molokai. But they feared Kupa the chief and could not aid him and therefore sent him on to another kula or prophet or sent him back to consult someone the other side of his home. All this time he carried with him fitting presents and sacrifices by which he hoped to gain the assistance of the gods through their priests. At last he came to the steep precipice which overlooks Kalaupapa and Kalawayo, the present home of the lepers. At the foot of this precipice was a hue in which the great shark god was worshipped. Down the sides of the precipice he climbed and at last found the priest of the shark god. The priest refused to give assistance, but directed him to go to a great cave in the bold cliffs south of Kalawao. The name of the cave was Ananapui, the cave of the eel. Here dwelt the great shark god Kahahuhu and his guardians or watchers Waka and Mu, the great dragons or reptiles of Polynesian legends. These dragons were mighty warriors in the defense of the shark god and were his kahus or caretakers while he slept or when his cave needed watching during his absence. Kamalo, tired and discouraged, plodded along through the rough lava fragments piled around the entrance to the cave. He bore across his shoulders a black pig, which he had carried many miles as an offering to whatever power he could find to aid him. As he came near to the cave, the watchman saw him and said, E, here comes a man, food for the great shark Mano, fish for Kahuhuhu. But Kamalau came nearer and for some reason aroused sympathy in the dragons. E, Healy, E, Healy, they cried to him. Away, away, it is death to you. Here's the taboo place. Death it may be, life it may be. Give me revenge for my sons, and I have no care for myself. Then the watchman asked about this trouble, and he told them how the chief Koopa had slain his sons as a punishment for beating the drums. Then he narrated the story of his wanderings all over Molokai seeking for some power strong enough to overcome Kupa. At last he had come to the shark god as the final possibility of aid. If Kuhahulu failed him, he was ready to die. Indeed, he had no wish to live. The Mu assured him of their kindly feelings and told him that it was a very good thing that Kauhulu 
was away fishing, for if he had been home there would have been no way for him to go before the god without suffering immediate death. There would have been not even an instant for explanations. Yet they ran a very great risk in aiding him, for they must conceal him until the way was opened by the favors of the great gods. If he should be discovered and eaten before gaining the aid of the shark god, they too must die with him. They decided that they would hide him in the rubbish pile of tarot peelings which had been thrown on one side when they had pounded tarot. Here he must lie in perfect silence until the way was made plain for him to act. They told him to watch for the coming of eight great surf waves rolling in from the sea, and then wait in his place of concealment for some opportunity to speak to the god, because he would come in the last great wave. Soon the surf began to roll in and break against the cliffs. Higher and higher rose the waves until the eighth reared far above the waters and met the winds from the shore, which whipped the curling crest into a shower of spray. It raced along the water and beat far up into the cave, breaking into foam, out of which the shark god emerged. At once he took his human form and walked up round the cave. As he passed the rubbish heap, he cried out, A man is here! I smell him! The dragons earnestly denied that anyone was there, but the shark god said, There is surely a man in this cave. If I find him, dead man you are. If I find him not, you shall live. Then Kahuhuhu looked along the walls of the cave and in all the hiding places, but could not find him. He called with a loud voice, but only the echoes answered like the voices of ghosts. After a thorough search, he was turning away to attend to other matters when Kamalo's pig squealed. Then the giant shark god leaped to the pile of tarot leavings and thrust them apart. There lay Kamalo and the black pig, which had been brought for sacrifice. Oh, the anger of the god! Oh, the blazing eyes! Kauhuhu instantly caught Kamalo and lifted him from the rubbish up toward his great mouth. Now the head and shoulders are in Kauhuhu's mouth. So quickly has this been done that Kamalo has had no time to think. Kamalo speaks quickly as the teeth are coming down upon him. E. Kahuhu, listen to me, hear my prayer, then perhaps eat me. The shark god is astonished and does not bite. He takes Kamalo from his mouth and says, Well, for you that you spoke quickly, perhaps you have a good thought. Speak. Then Kamalo told about his sons and their death at the hands of the executioners of the great chief and that no one dared avenge him, but that all the prophets of their different gods had sent him from one place to another, but could not give him no aid. 
Sure now was he that Kahuhu alone could give him aid. Pity came to the shark god as it had come to his dragon watchers when they saw the sad condition of Kamalo. All this time Kamalo had held the hog which he had carried with him for sacrifice. This he now offered to the shark god. Kahuhu, pleased and compassionate, accepted the offering and said, E Kamaho, if you had come for any other purpose, I would eat you, but your cause is sacred. I will stand as your kahu, your guardian, and sorely punish the high chief, Kupa. Then he told Kamalo to go to the hue of the priest who told him to see the shark god. Take this priest on his shoulders, carry him over the steep precipices to his own hue at Kalaluaha, and there live with him as a fellow priest. They were to build a taboo fence around the hue and put up the sacred taboo staffs of white tapa cloth. They must collect black pigs by the 400, red fish by the 400, and white chickens by the 400. Then they were to wait patiently for the coming of Kauhuhu. It was to be a strange coming. On the island of Lanai, far to the west of the Maui Channel, they should see a small cloud, white as snow, increasing until it covered the little island. Then that cloud would cross the channel against the wind and climb the mountains of Molokai, until it rested on the highest peaks over the valley where Kupa had his temple. At that time, said Kahuhuhu, a great rainbow will span the valley. I shall be in the care of that rainbow, and you may clearly understand that I am there and will speedily punish the man who has injured you. Remember that because you came to me for this sacred cause, Therefore, I have spared you, the only man who has ever stood in the presence of the shark god and escaped alive. Swiftly did Camelo go up and down precipices and along the rough hard ways to the hue of the priest of the shark god. Gladly did he carry him up from Kalapupapa to the mountain ridge above. Quickly did he carry him to his home, and there provide for him while he gathered together the black pigs, the red fish, and the white chickens within the sacred enclosure he had built. Here he brought his family, those who had the nearest and strongest claims upon him. When his work was done, his eyes burned with watching the clouds of the little western island, Lanai. Ah, the days passed so slowly, the weeks and months came, so the legends say, and still Camelo waited in patience. At last one day, a white cloud appeared. It was unlike all the other white clouds he had anxiously watched during the dreary months. Over the channel it came, it spread over the hillsides and climbed the mountains and rested at the head of the valley belonging to Kupa. Then the watchers saw the glorious rainbow and knew that Kauhuhu had come according to his word. The storm arose at the head of the valley. 
The wind struggled into a furious gale. The clouds gathered in heavy black masses, dark as midnight, and were pierced through with terrific flashes of lightning. The rains fell in floods, sweeping the hillside down into the valley and rolling all that was below onward in a resistless mass toward the ocean. Down came the torrent upon the hue belonging to Kupa, tearing its walls into fragments and washing Kupa and his people into the harbor at the mouth of the valley. Here the shark god had gathered his people. Sharks filled the bay and feasted upon Kupa and his followers until the waters ran red and all were destroyed. Hence came the legendary name for that little harper, Aikana Ka, the place for man-eaters. It is said in the legends that when great clouds gather on the mountains and a rainbow spans the valley, Look out for furious storms of wind and rain which come suddenly, sweeping down the valley. It is also said in the legends that this strange storm, which came in such awful power upon Kupa, spread out over the adjoining lowlands, carrying great destruction everywhere. But it paused at the taboo staff of Kamalo and rushed on either side of the sacred fence not daring to touch anyone who dwelt therein. Therefore, Camelo and his people were spared. The legend has been called Aikanaka because of the feast of the sharks on the human flesh, swept down into the harbor by the storm. But it seems more fitting to name the story after the shark god Kauhuhu, who sent mighty storms and wrought great destruction. The Shark Man of Waipio Valley This is a story of Waipio Valley, the most beautiful of all the valleys of the Hawaiian Islands, and one of the most secluded. It is now, as it has always been, very difficult to access. The walls are a sheer descent of over a thousand feet. In ancient times, a narrow path slanted along the face of the bluffs wherever foothold could be found. In these later days, the path has been enlarged and horse and rider can descend into the valley's depths. In the upper end of the valley is a long silver ribbon of water falling 1,500 feet from the brow of a precipice over which a mountain torrent swiftly hurls itself to the fertile valley below. Other falls show the convergence of several mountain streams to the ocean outlet offered by the broad plains of Waipio. Here in the long-ago high chiefs dwelt and sacred temples were built. From Waipio Valley, Molokiha and Lamakaki sailed away on their famous voyages to distant foreign lands. In this valley dwelt the priest who, in the times of Maui, was said to have the winds of heaven concealed in his calabash. 
Raising the cover a little, he sent gentle breezes in the direction of the opening. Several storms and hurricanes were granted by swiftly opening the cover widely and letting a chaotic mass of fierce winds escape. The stories of magical powers of bird and fish, as well as of the strange deeds of powerful men, are almost innumerable. Not the least of the history myths of Waipio Valley is the story of Nanui, the shark man, who was one of the cannibals of the ancient time. Kamohu Ali was the king of all the sharks, which frequent Hawaiian waters. When he chose to appear as a man, he was always a chief of dignified, majestic appearance. One day, while swimming back and forth just beneath the surface of the waters at the mouth of the valley, he saw an exceedingly beautiful woman coming to bathe in the white surf. That night, Kamoho Ali came to the beach black with lava sand, crawled out of the water, and put on the form of a man. As a mighty chief, he walked through the valley and mingled with the people. For days he entered into their sports and pastimes and partook of their bounty, always looking for the beautiful woman whom he had seen bathing in the surf. When he found her, he came to her and won her to be his wife. Kali was the name of the woman who married the strange chief. When the time came for a child to be born to them, Kamoho Ali charged Kali to keep careful watch of it and guard its body continually from being seen of men and never allow the child to eat the flesh of any animal. Then he disappeared, never permitting Kali to have the least suspicion that he was the king of the sharks. When the child was born, Kali gave him the name Nanui. She was exceedingly surprised to find an opening in his back. As the child grew to manhood, the opening developed into a large shark mouth in rows of fierce sharp teeth. From infancy to manhood, Kali protected Nanui by keeping his back covered with a fine kappa cloak. She was full of fear as she saw Nanui plunge into the water and become a shark. The mouth on his back opened for any kind of prey, but she kept the terrible birthmark of her son a secret, hidden in the depths of her own heart. For years she prepared for him the common articles of food, always shielding him from the temptation to eat meat. But when he became a man, his grandfather took him to the man's eating house, where his mother could no longer protect him. Meats of all varieties were given to him in great abundance, yet he always wanted more. His appetite was insatiable. While under his mother's care, he had been taken to the pool of water into which the great Waipio Falls poured its cascade of water. There he bathed and, changing himself into a shark, caught the small fish which were playing around him. 
His mother was always watching him to give an alarm if any of the people came near to the bathing place. As he became a man, he avoided his companions in all bathing and fishing. He went away by himself. When the people were out in the deep sea bathing or fishing, suddenly a fierce shark would appear in their midst, biting and tearing their limbs and dragging them down into the deep water. Many of the people disappeared secretly, and great terror filled the homes of Waipio. Nanui's mother alone was certain that he was the cause of the trouble. He was becoming very bold in his depredations. Sometimes he would ask when his friends were going out in the sea. Then he would go to a place at some distance, leap into the sea, and swiftly dash to intercept the return of his friends to the shore. Perhaps he would ally suspicion by appearing as a man and challenge to a swimming race. Diving suddenly, he would in an instant become a shark and destroy his fellow swimmer. The people felt that he had some peculiar power and feared him. One day, when their high chief had called all the men of the valley to prepare the taro patches for their future supply of food, a fellow workman standing by the side of Nanui tore his kappa cape from his shoulders. The men behind cried out, See the great shark mouth! All the people came running together, shouting, A shark man! A shark man! Nanui became very angry and snapped his shark teeth together. Then, with bitter rage, he attacked those standing near him. He seized one by the arm and bit it in two. He tore the flesh of another in ragged gashes. Biting and snapping from side to side, he ran toward the sea. The crowd of natives surrounded him and blocked his way. He was thrown down and tied. The mystery had now passed from the valley. The people knew the cause of the troubles through which they had been passing, and all crowded around to see this wonderful thing, part man and part shark. The high chief ordered their largest oven to be prepared, that Nanui might be placed therein and burned alive. The deep pit was quickly cleaned out by many willing hands, and, with much noise and rejoicing, fire was placed within, and the stones for heating were put in above the fire. We are ready for the shark man, was the cry. During the confusion, Nanui quietly made his plans to escape, suddenly changing himself into a shark. The cords which bound him fell off, and he rolled into one of the rivers, which flowed from the falls in the upper part of the valley. None of the people dared to spring into the water for a hand-to-hand -hand fight with the monster. They ran along the bank, throwing stones at Nanui and bruising him. They called for spears that they might kill him, but he made a swift rush to the sea and swam away, never again to return to Waipio Valley. Apparently, Nanui could not live long in the ocean, 
The story says that he swam over to the island of Maui and landed near the village of Hana. There he dwelt for some time and married a chiefess. Meanwhile, he secretly killed and ate some of the people. At last, his appetite for human flesh made him so bold that he caught a beautiful young girl and carried her out into the deep waters. There he changed himself into a shark and ate her body in the sight of the people. The Hawaiians became very angry. They launched their canoes and throwing in all kinds of weapons, pushed out to kill their enemy. But he swam swiftly away, passing around the island until he landed on Molokai. Again he joined himself to the people and again, one by one, those who went bathing and fishing disappeared. The priests, kahunas of the people, at last heard from their fellow priests of the island of Maui that there was a dangerous shark man roaming through the islands. They sent warning to the people, urging all trusty fishermen to keep strict watch. At last they saw Nanui change himself into a great fish. The fishermen waged a fierce battle against him. They entangled him in their nets. They pierced him with spears and struck him with clubs until the waters were red with his blood. They called on the gods of the sea to aid them. They uttered prayers and incantations. Soon Nanui lost strength and could not throw off the ropes which were tied around him nor could he break the nets in which he was entangled. The fishermen drew him to the shore, and the people dragged the great shark body up the hill Pumano. Then they cut the body into small pieces and burned them in a great oven. Thus died Nanui, whose cannibal life was best explained by giving to him in mythology the awful appetite of an insatiable man-eating shark. The Strange Banana Skin Kuakali, according to the folklore of Hawaii, was born at Kalapana, the most southerly point of the largest island of the Hawaiian group. Kukali lived hundreds of years ago in the days of the migrations of Polynesians from one group of islands to another throughout the length and breadth of the great Pacific Ocean. He visited strange lands, now known under the general name Kahiki or Tahiti. Here he killed the great bird Halalulu found the deep bottomless pit in which was a pool of the fabled water of life, married the sister of Halululu, and returned to his own home. All this he accomplished through the wonderful power of a banana skin. Kukali's father was a priest, or kuhuna, of great wisdom and ability who taught his children how to exercise strange and magical powers. To Kukali, he gave a banana with the impressive charge to preserve the skin whenever he ate the fruit, 
and be careful that it was always under his control. He taught Ku Kali the wisdom of the makers of canoes and also how to select the fine grained lava for stone knives and hatchets and fashion the blade to the best shape. He instructed the young man in the prayers and incantations of greatest efficacy and showed him charms which would be more powerful than any charms his enemies might use in attempting to destroy him and taught him those omens which were too powerful to be overcome. Thus Ku Kali became a wizard, having great confidence in his ability to meet the craft of the wise men of distant islands. Ku Kali went inland through the forests and up the mountains, carrying no food save the banana, which his father had given him. Hunger came, and he carefully stripped back the skin and ate the banana, folding the skin once more together. In a little while, the skin was filled with fruit. Again and again he ate, and as his hunger was satisfied, the fruit always again filled the skin, which he was careful never to throw away or lose. The fever of sea roving was in the blood of the Hawaiian people in those days, and Ku Kali's heart burned within him with the desire to visit the far away lands about which other men told marvelous tales and from which came strangers like to the Hawaiians in many ways. After a while, he went to the forest and selected trees approved by the omens, and with many prayers fashioned a great canoe in which to embark upon his journey. The story is not told of the days passed on the great stretches of water as he sailed on and on, guided by the sun in the day and the stars in the night until he came to the strange lands about which he had dreamed for years. His canoe was drawn up on the shore, and he lay down for rest. Before falling asleep, he secreted his magic banana in his mallow, or loincloth, and then gave himself to deep slumber. His rest was troubled with strange dreams, but his weariness was great, and his eyes heavy, and he could not arouse himself to meet the dangers which were swiftly surrounding him. A great bird which lived on human flesh was the god of the land to which he had come. The name of the bird was Halulu. Each feather of its wings was provided with talons and seemed to be endowed with human powers. Nothing like this bird was ever known or seen in the beautiful Hawaiian islands. But here in the mysterious foreign land, it had its deep valley walled in like the valley of the Arabian Nights, over which the great bird hovered, looking into the depths for food. A strong wind always attended the coming of Halulu, when he sought the valley for his victims. Ku Kali was lifted on the wings of the bird god 
and carried to this hole and quietly laid on the ground to finish his hour of deep sleep. When Kukali awoke, he found himself in the shut-in valley with many companions who had been captured by the great bird and placed in this prison hole. They had been without food and were very weak. Now and then one of the number would lie down to die. Halulu, the bird god, would perch on a tree which grew on the edge of the precipice and let down its wing to sweep across the floor of the valley and pick up the victims lying on the ground. Those who were strong could escape the feathers as they brushed over the bottom and hide in the crevices in the walls. But day by day, the weakest of the prisoners were lifted out and prepared for Halulu's feast. Kukali pitied the helpless state of his fellow prisoners and prepared his best incantations and prayers to help him overcome the great bird. He took his wonderful banana and fed all the people until they were very strong. He taught them how to seek stones best fitted for the manufacture of knives and hatchets. Then for days they worked until they were all well armed with sharp stone weapons. When Kukali and his fellow prisoners were making preparation for the final struggle, the bird god had often come to his perch and put his wing down into the valley brushing the feathers back and forth to catch his prey. Frequently, the search was fruitless. At last, he became very impatient and sent his strongest feathers along the precipitous walls, seeking for victims. Kukali and his companions then ran out from their hiding places and fought the strong feathers cutting them off and chopping them into small pieces. Halulu cried out with pain and anger and sent feather after feather into the prison. Soon one wing was entirely destroyed. Then the other wing was broken to pieces and the bird god, in his insane wrath, put down a strong leg armed with great talons. Kukali uttered mighty invocations and prepared sacred charms for the protection of his friends. After a fierce battle, they cut off the leg and destroyed the talons. Then came the struggle with the remaining leg and claws, but Kukali's friends had become very bold. They fearlessly gathered around this enemy hacking and pulling until the bird god, screaming with pain, fell into the pit among the prisoners, who quickly cut the body into fragments. The prisoners made steps in the walls and by the aid of vines, climbed out of their prison. When they had fully escaped, they gathered great piles of branches and trunks of trees and threw them into the prison until the body of the bird god was covered. Fire was thrown down and Halulu was burned to ashes. Thus Kukali taught by his charms that 
Honolulu could be completely destroyed. But two of the breast feathers of the burning Honolulu flew away to his sister, who lived in a great hole which had no bottom. The name of this sister was Namakahia. She belonged to the family of Pele, the goddess of volcanic fires, who had journeyed to Hawaii and taken up her home in the crater of the volcano Kilauea. Namakahia smelled smoke on the feathers which came to her and knew that her brother was dead. She also knew that he could have been conquered only by one possessing great magical powers. So she called to his people, Who is the great Kupa wizard who has killed my brother? Oh, my people, keep careful watch. Kukali was exploring all parts of the strange land in which he had already found marvelous adventures. By and by he came to the great pit in which Namakahia lived. He could not see the bottom, so he told his companions he was going down to see what mysteries were concealed in this hole without a bottom. They made a rope of the how tree bark. Fastening one end around his body, he ordered his friends to let him down. Uttering prayers and incantations, he went down and down until, owing to counter incantations of Namakaia's priest, who had been watching, the rope broke and he fell. Down he went swiftly, but remembering the prayer which a falling man must use to keep him from injury, he cried, O Ku, guard my life. In the ancient Hawaiian mythology, there was frequent mention of the water of life. Sometimes the sick bathed in it and were healed. Sometimes it was sprinkled upon the unconscious, bringing them back to life. Kukali's incantation was of great power, for it threw him into a pool of the water of life, and he was saved. One of the kahunas, priests, caring for Namakahia, was a very great wizard. He saw the wonderful preservation of Kukali and became his friend. He warned Kukali against eating anything that was ripe because it would be poison, and even the most powerful charms could not save him. Kukali thanked him and went out among the people. He had carefully preserved his wonderful banana skin and was able to eat apparently ripe fruit and yet be perfectly safe. The kahunas of Namakia tried to overcome him and destroy him, but he conquered them, killed those who were bad, and entered into friendship with those who were good. At last he came to the place where the great chiefess dwelt. Here he was tested in many ways. He accepted the fruits offered him, but always ate the food in his magic banana. Thus he preserved his strength and conquered even the chiefess and married her. 
After living with her for a time, he began to long for his old home in Hawaii. Then he persuaded her to do as her relative Pele had already done, and the family, taking their large canoe, sailed away to Hawaii, their future home. The Old Man of the Mountain this is not a Hawaiian legend. It was written to show the superstitions of the Hawaiians, and in that respect it is accurate and worthy of preservation. Far away in New England, one of the rugged mountainsides has for many years been marked with the profile of a grand face. A noble brow, deep-set eyes, close-shut lips, Roman nose and chin standing in full relief against a clear sky made a landmark renowned throughout the country. The story is told of a boy who lived in the valley from which the face of the old man of the mountain could be most clearly seen. As the years passed, the boy grew into a man of sterling character. When at last death came and the casket opened to receive the body of an old man, universally revered, the friends saw the likeness to the stone features of the old man of the mountain and recognized the source of the inspiration which had made one life useful and honored. Near Honolulu, just beyond one of the great sugar plantations, is a ledge of lava deposited centuries ago. The lava was piled up into mountains, now dissolved into slopes of the richest sugar land in the world. And yet sometimes the hard lava, refusing to disintegrate, thrusts itself out from the hillsides in ledges of grotesque form. On one of these ancient lava ridges was the outline of an old man's face, to which the Hawaiians have given the name the Old Man of the Mountain. The laborers on the sugar plantations, the passengers on the railroad trains, and the natives who still cling to their scattered homes sometimes have looked with superstitious awe upon the face made without hands. In the days gone by, they have called it the Akua Pokahu, the stone god. Shall we hear the story of Kamakau, who at some time in the indefinite past dwelt in the shadow of the stone face? Kamakau means the afraid. His name came to him as a child. He was a shrinking, sensitive, imaginative little fellow. He was surrounded by influences which turned his imagination into the paths of most unwholesome superstition. But beyond the beliefs of most of his fellows, in his own nature, he was keenly appreciative of mysterious things. There was a spirit voice in every wind rustling the tops of the trees. Spirit faces appeared in enumerated characters of human outline whenever he lay on the grass and watched the sunlight sift 
between the leaves. Everything he looked upon or heard assumed some curious form of life. The clouds were most mysterious of all, for they so frequently piled up mass upon mass of grandeur in such luxurious magnificence and such prodigal display of color that his power of thought lost itself in his almost daily dream of some time wandering in the shadow valleys of the precipitous mountains of heaven here he saw also strangely symmetrical forms of man and bird and fish sometimes cloud forests outlined themselves against the blue sky and then again at times separated by months and even years the lights of the volcano goddess pele glorified her path as she wandered in the spirit land flashing from cloud peak to cloud peak while the thunder voices of the great gods rolled in mighty volumes of terrific impressiveness even in the night kamakau felt that the innumerable stars were the eyes of the amakus the spirits of the ancestors it was not strange that such a child should continually think that he saw spirit forms which were invisible to his companions it is no wonder that he fancied he heard voices of the mehunis fairies which his companions could never understand as he shrunk from places where it seemed to him the spirits dwelt his companions called him kamakau the afraid when he grew older he necessarily became keenly alive to all objects of hawaiian superstition he never could escape the overwhelming presence of the thousand and more gods which were supposed to inhabit the hawaiian land and sea the omens drawn from sacrifices the voices from the bamboo dwelling places of the oracles the chants of the prophets and powers of praying to death he accepted with unquestioning faith two men were hunting in the forests of the mountains of oahu tired with the long chase after the oo the bird with the rare yellow feathers from which the feather cloaks of the highest chiefs were made they laid aside spears and snares and lay down for a rest i want the valley of the stone god said one its fertile fields would make just the increase needed for my retainers and the moi the king would give me the land if kamakau were out of the way are there any other members of his family o inaya who could resist your claim no my friend kokua he is the only important chief in the valley pray him to death was kokua's sentuous advice good i'll do it said inaya he is one who can easily be prayed to death the afraid will soon die if you give me the small fish pond nearest my own coral fish balls 
I will be your messenger, said Kokua. Ah, that is also good, replied Inaya, after a moment's thought. I will give you the small pond, and you must give the small thoughts, the hints, to his friends that powerful priests are praying Kamaku to death. All this must be very mysterious. No name can be mentioned, and you and I must be Kamakau's good friends. It must be remembered that land tenure in ancient Hawaii was almost the same as that of the European feudal system. Occupancy depended upon the will of the high chief. He gave or took it away at his own pleasure. The under chiefs held the land as it belonged to them and were seldom troubled as long as the wishes of the high chief or king were carried out. Inea felt secure in the use of his present property and believed that he could easily find favor and obtain the land held by the Kamakau family if Kamakau himself could be removed. Without much further conference, the two hunters returned to their homes. Inea at once sought his family priest and stated his wish to have Kamakau prayed to death. They decided that the first step should be taken that night. It was absolutely necessary that something which had been a part of the body of Kamakau should be obtained. The priest appointed his confidential hunter of sacrifices to undertake this task. This servant of the temple was usually sent out to find human sacrifices to be slain and offered before the great gods on special occasions. As the darkness came on, he crept near the grass house of Kamakau and watched for an opportunity of seizing what he wanted. The two most desired things in the art of praying to death were either a lock of hair from the head of the victim or a part of the spittle, usually well guarded by the trusted retainers who had charge of the spittoon. It chanced to be an awa night for Kamakau, and the chief, having drunk heavily of the drug, had thrown himself on a mat and rolled near the grass walls. With great ingenuity, the hunter of sacrifices located the chief and worked a hole through the thatch. Then with his sharp bone knife, he sawed off a large lock of Kamakau's hair. When this was done, he was about to creep away, but a native came near. Instantly grunting like a hog, he worked his way into the darkness. He saw outlined against the sky in the hands of the native, the chief's platoon. In a moment, the hunter of sacrifices saw his opportunity. His past training in lying in wait and capturing men for sacrifice stood him in good stead at this time. The unsuspecting spittoon carrier was seized by the throat and quickly strangled. The spittoon in falling from the retainer's hand had not been overturned. Exultant at his success, 
The hunter of sacrifices sped away in the darkness and placed his trophies in the hands of the priest. The next morning there was great outcry in Kamakau's village. The dead body was found as soon as dawn crept over the valley, and the hand-polished family calabash was completely lost. When the people went to Kamakau's house with the report of the death of his retainer, they soon saw that the head of their chief had been dishonored. A great feeling of fear took possession of the village. Kamakau's priest hurried to the village temple to utter prayers and incantations against the enemy who had committed such an outrage. Kokua soon heard the news and came to comfort his neighbor. After the greeting, Awi, Awi, alas, alas, Kokua said, This is surely praying to death, and the gods have already given you over into the hands of your enemy. You will die. Very soon you will die. Soon Inea and other chiefs came with their retainers. Among high and low the terrible statement was whispered, Kamakau is being prayed to death, and no man knows his enemy. Many a strong man has gone to a bed of continued illness, and some have crossed the dark valley into the land of death, even in these days of enlightened civilization simply frightened into the illness or death by the strong statements of friends and acquaintances. Such is the makeup of the minds of men that they are easily affected by the mysterious suggestions of others. It is purely a matter of mind murder. It is no wonder that in the days of the long ago Kamakau, Moved by the terror of his friends and horrible suggestions of his two enemies, soon felt a great weakness conquering him. His natural disposition, his habit of seeing and hearing gods and spirits in everything around him made it easy for him to yield to the belief that he was being prayed to death. His strength left him. He could not take food. A strange paralysis seemed to take possession of him. Mind and body were almost benumbed. He was ready in the hands of unconscious mesmerists, who were putting him into a magnetic sleep, from which he was never expected to awake. It is a question to be answered only when all earthly problems have been solved. How many of the people prayed to death have really been dissected and prepared for burial while at first under mesmeric influences. The people gathered around Kamakau's thatched house. They thought that he would surely die before the next morning dawn. Inea and Kokua were lying on the grass under the shade of a great candle nut tree, quietly talking about the speedy success of their undertaking. A little girl was playing near them. It was Kamakau's little Aloha. This was all the name so far given to her. She was my Aloha, 
My dear one, to both father and mother, she heard a word uttered incautiously. Inea had spoken with the accent of success, and his voice was louder than he thought. He said, We have great strength if we kill Kamakau. The child fled to her father. She found him in the half-conscious state already described. She shook him. She called to him. She pulled his hands and covered his face with kisses. Her tears poured over his hot, dry skin. Kamakau was aroused by the shock. He sat up, forgetting all the expectation of death. Out through the doorway he glanced toward the west. The sinking sun was sending its most glorious beams into the grand clouds, while just beneath, reflecting the glory, lay the old man of the mountain. The stone face was magnificent in its setting. The unruffled brow, the never-closing eyes, the firm lips, stood out in bold relief against the glory which was over and beyond them. Kamakau caught the inspiration. It seemed to his vivid imagination as if 10,000 good spirits were gathered in the heavens to fight for him. He leaped to his feet. Strength came back into the wearied muscles. A new willpower took possession of him and he cried, I will not die, I will not die. The stone god is more powerful than the priest who prayed to death. His will had broken away from its chains, and unfettered from all fear, Kamakau went forth to greet the wandering people and take up again the position of influence held among the chiefs of Oahu. The lesson is still needed in these beautiful ocean-bound islands, the praying to death means either the use of poison or the attempt to terrify the victim by strong mental forces enslaving the will. In either case, the aroused will is powerful in both resistance and watchfulness. End of section 10. Hawaiian Ghost Testing Manoa Valley, for centuries, has been to the Hawaiians the royal palace of rainbows. The mountains at the head of the valley were gods whose children were the divine wind and rain from whom was born the beautiful rainbow maiden who plays in and around the valley day and night whenever misty showers are touched by sunlight or moonlight. The natives of the valley usually give her the name of Ka'aloapona or Hala of the Puna. Sometimes, however, they call her Kaikavahine Anunu, or the Rainbow Maiden. The rainbow, the Anunu, marks the continuation of the legendary life of Kahala. The legend of Kahala is worthy of record in itself, but connected with the story is a very interesting account of an attempt to discover and capture ghosts according to the methods supposed to be effective by the Hawaiian witch doctors or priests of the long, long ago. The legend says that the Rainbow Maiden had two lovers, one from Waikiki and one from 
Kamaloiili, halfway between Manoa and Waikiki. Both wanted the beautiful arch to rest over their homes, and the maiden, the descendant of the gods, to dwell therein. Kohai, the Waikiki chief, was of the family of the Moa'alii, the shark god, and partook of the shark's cruel nature. He became angry with the rainbow maiden and killed her and buried her body. He became angry with the rainbow maiden and killed her and buried the body. But her guardian god, Pueo, the owl, scratched away the earth and brought her to life. Several times this occurred, and the owl each time restored the buried body to the wandering spirit. At last, the chief buried the body deep down under the roots of a large koa tree. The owl god scratched and pulled, but the roots of the tree were many and strong. His claws were entangled again and again. At last, he concluded that life must be extinct, and so deserted the place. The spirit of the murdered girl was wandering around, hoping that it could be restored to the body and not be compelled to descend to Milu, the underworld of the Hawaiians. Po was sometimes the underworld, and Milu was the god ruling over Po. The Hawaiian ghosts did not go to the home of the dead as soon as they were separated from the body. Many times, as when rendered unconscious, it was believed that the spirit had left the body, but for some reason had been able to come back into it and enjoy life among friends once more. Kahala, the rainbow maiden, was thus restored several times by the owl god, but with this last failure, it seemed to be certain that the body would grow cold and stiff before the spirit could return. The spirit hastened to and fro in great distress, trying to attract attention. If a wandering spirit could interest someone to render speedy aid, the ancient Hawaiians thought that a human being could place the spirit back in the body. Certain prayers and incantations were very effective in calling the spirit back to its earthly home. The Samoans had the same thought concerning the restoration of life to one who had become unconscious and had a special prayer which was known as the prayer of life, by which the spirit was persuaded to return to its home. The Hawaii Islanders also had the same conception of any unconscious condition. They thought the spirit left the body, but when persuaded to do so, returned and brought the body back to life. They have a story of a woman who, like the Rainbow Maiden, was restored to life several times. The spirit of Kahala was almost discouraged. The shadows of real death were encompassing her, and the feeling of separation from the body was becoming more and more permanent. At last, she saw a noble young chief approaching. He was Mahana, the chief of the Komali'i'ali. The spirit hovered over him and around him and tried to impress her anguish upon him. Mahana felt the call of distress and attributed it to the presence of a ghost, or Amakua, a ghost god. He was conscious of an influence leading him toward a large koa tree. There he found the earth disturbed by the owl god. He tore aside the roots and discovered the body bruised and disfigured, yet recognized it as the body of the rainbow maiden whom he had loved. In the King Kalakoa version of the story, Mahana is represented as taking the body, which was still warm, to his home in Kamolaili. Mahana's elder brother was a kahuna, or witch doctor, a great celebrity. He was called at once to pronounce the prayers and invocations necessary for influencing the spirit and the body to reunite. 
Long and earnestly the kahuna practiced all the arts with which he was acquainted, and yet completely failed. In his anxiety he called upon the spirits of two sisters who, as amakuas, watched over the welfare of Mahana's clan. These spirit sisters brought the spirit of the rainbow maiden to the bruised body and induced it to enter the feet. Then, by using the forces of spirit land, while the kahuna chanted and used his charms, they pushed the spirit of Kahala slowly up the body until the soul was once more restored to its beautiful tenement. The spirit sisters then aided Mahana in restoring the wounded body to its old vigor and beauty. Thus, many days passed in close comradeship between Kahala and the young chief, and they learned to care greatly for one another. But while Kohai lived, it was unsafe for it to be known that Kahala was alive. Mahana determined to provoke Kohai to personal combat. Therefore, he sought the places which Kohai frequented for sport and gambling. Bitter words were spoken and fierce anger aroused until at last, by the skillful use of Kahala's story, Mahana led Kohai to admit that he had killed the Rainbow Maiden and buried her body. Mahana said that Kahala was now alive and visiting his sisters. Kohai declared that if there was anyone visiting Mahana's home, it must be an imposter. In his anger against Mahana, he determined a more awful death that could possibly come from any personal conflict. He was so sure that Kahala was dead that he offered to be baked alive in one of the native emus, or ovens, if she should be produced before the king and the principal chiefs of the district. Aka'aka, the grandfather of Kahala, was one of the mountain gods of Manoa Valley, was to be one of the judges. This proposition suited Mahana better than a conflict in which there was a possibility of losing his own life. Kohai now feared that some deception might be practiced. His proposition had been so eagerly accepted that he became suspicious. Therefore, he consulted the sorcerers of his own family. They agreed that it was possible for some powerful kahuna to present the ghost of the murdered maiden and so deceive the judges. They decided that it was necessary to be prepared to test the ghosts. If it could be shown that ghosts were present, then the aid of spirit catchers from the land of Milu could be invoked. Spirits would seize these venturesome ghosts and carry them away to the spirit land where special punishments should be meted out to them. It was supposed that spirit catchers were continually sent out by Milu, king of the underworld. How could these ghosts be detected? They would certainly appear in human form and be carefully safeguarded. The chief sorcerer of Kohai's family told Kohai to make secretly a thorough test. This could be done by taking the large and delicate leaves of the ape plant and spreading them over the place where Kahala must walk and sit before the judges. A human being could not touch these leaves so carefully placed without tearing and bruising them. A ghost walking upon them could not make any impression. Untorn leaves would condemn Mahana to the ovens to be baked alive and the spirit catchers would be called by the sorcerers to seize the escaped ghost and carry it back to spirit land. Of course, if some other maid of the islands had pretended to be Kahala, that could be easily determined by her divine ancestor, Aka-Aka. The trial was really a test of ghosts, for the presence of Kahala as a spirit in her former human likeness was all that Kohai and his chief sorcerer feared. The leaves were selected with great care, is secretly placed so that no one should touch them but Kahala. There was great interest in this strange contest for a home and a burning oven. The emus had been prepared, 
The holes had been dug, and the stones and wood necessary for the sacrifice laid close at hand. The king and judges were in their places. The multitude of retainers stood around at respectful distance. Kohai and his chief sorcerer were placed where they could watch closely every movement of the maiden who should appear before the judgment seat. Kahala, the rainbow maiden, with all the beauty of her past girlhoods restored to her, drew near, attended by the spirit sisters, who had saved and protected her. The spirits knew at once the ghost test by which Kahala was to be tried. They knew also that she had nothing to fear, but they must not be discovered. The test applied to Kahala would only make more evident proof that she was a living human being, but that same test would prove that they were ghosts, and the spirit catchers would be called at once, and they would be caught and carried away for punishment. The spirit sisters could not try to escape. Any such attempt would arouse suspicion, and they would be surely seized. The ghost testing was a serious ordeal for Kahala and her friends. The spirit sisters whispered to Kahala, telling her the purpose attending the use of the ape leaves, and asking her to break as many of them on either side of her as she could, without attracting undue attention. Thus she could aid her own cause and also protect the sister spirits. Slowly and with great dignity, the beautiful rainbow maiden and her friends passed through the crowds of eager attendants to their places before the king. Kahala bruised and broke as many of the leaves as she could quietly. She was recognized at once as the child of the divine rain and wind of Manoa Valley. There was no question concerning her bodily presence. The torn leaves afforded ample and indisputable testimony. Kohai, in despair, recognized the girl whom he had several times tried to slay. In bitter disappointment at the failure of his ghost test, the chief sorcerer, as the Kalakoa version of this legend says, declared that he saw and felt the presence of spirits in some manner connected with her. These spirits, he claimed, must be detected and punished. A second form of ghost testing was proposed by Aka'aka, the mountain god. This was a method frequently employed throughout all the islands of the Hawaiian group. It was believed that any face reflected in a pool or calabash of water was a spirit face. Many times had ghosts been discovered in this way. The face in the water had been grasped by the watcher, crushed between his hands, and the spirit destroyed. The chief sorcerer eagerly ordered a calabash of water to be quickly brought and placed before him. In his anxiety to detect and seize the spirits who might be attending Kahala, he forgot about himself and leaned over the calabash. His own spirit face was the only one reflected on the surface of the water. This spirit face was believed to be his own true spirit, escaping for the moment from the body and bathing in the liquid before him. Aka Aka leaped forward, thrust his hands down into the water, and seized and crushed this spirit face between his mighty hands. Thus it was destroyed before it could return to its home of flesh and blood. The chief sorcerer fell dead by the side of the calabash, by means of which he had hoped to destroy the friends of the rainbow maiden. In this trial of ghosts, the two most powerful methods of making a test as far as known among the ancient Hawaiians were put in practice. Kohai was punished for his crimes against Kahala. He was baked alive in the emu prepared on his own land at Waikiki. His lands and retainers were given to Kahala and Mahana. 
The story of Kahala and her connection with the rainbows and waterfalls of Manoa Valley has been told from time to time in the homes of the nature-loving native residents of the valley. How Milu Became the King of Ghosts Lono was a chief living on the western side of the island Hawaii. He had a very red skin and strange-looking eyes. His choice of occupation was farming. This man had never been sick. One time, he was dragging with the oo, a long, sharp-pointed stick or spade. A man passed and admired him. The people said, Lono has never been sick. The man said, he will be sick. Lono was talking about that man, and at the same time, struck his oo down with force and cut his foot. He shed much blood and fainted, falling to the ground. A man took a pig, went after the stranger, and let the pig go, which ran to this man. The stranger was Kamaka, a god of healing. He turned and went back to the call of the messenger, taking some popolo fruit and leaves in his cloak. When he came to the injured man, he asked for salt, which he pounded into the fruit and leaves, and placed in cocoa cloth, and bound it on the wound, leaving it a long time. Then he went away. As he journeyed on, he heard heavy breathing, and turning saw Lono, who said, You have helped me, and so I have left my lands in the care of my friends, directing them what to do, and have hastened after you to learn how to heal other people. The god said, Lono, open your mouth. This Lono did, and the god spat in his mouth, so that the saliva could be taken into every part of Lono's body. Thus, a part of the god became a part of Lono, and he became very skillful in the use of all healing remedies. He learned about the various diseases and medicines needed for each. The god and Lono walked together, Lono receiving new lessons along the way, passing through the districts of Kau, Puna, Hilo, and then to Hamakua. The god said, it is not right for us to stay together. You can never accomplish anything by staying with me. You must go to a separate place and give yourself up to healing people. Lono turned aside to dwell in Waimanu and Waipio valleys, and there began to practice healing, becoming very noted, while the god Kamaka made his home at Kukui Haele. This god did not tell the other gods of the medicines that he had taught Lono. One of the other gods, Kalae, was trying to find some way to kill Milu, and was always making him sick. Milu, chief of the Waipio, heard of the skill of Lono. Some had been sick even to death, and Lono had healed them. Therefore, Milu sent a messenger to Lono, who responded at once, came and slapped Milu all over the body, and said, You are not ill. Obey me, and you shall be well. Then he healed him from all the sickness inside the body caused by Kalae, but there was danger from outside, so he said, You must build a tea-leaf house and dwell there quietly for some time, letting your disease rest. If a company should come by the house making sport with a great noise, do not go out, because when you go... They will come up and get you for your death. Do not open the tea leaves and look out. The day you do this, you shall die. Some time passed, and the chief remained in the house. But one day, there was the confused noise of many people talking and shouting around his house. He did not forget the command of Lono. Two birds were sporting in a wonderful way in the sky above the forest. This continued all day until it was dark. Then another long time passed, and again Waipio was full of resounding noises. A great bird appeared in the sky, resplendent in all kinds of feathers, swaying from side to side over the valley, from the top of one precipice to the top of another. 
in grand flights passing over the heads of the people, who shouted until the valley re-echoed with the sound. Milu became tired of that great noise, and could not patiently obey his physician. So he pushed aside some of the tea leaves of his house and looked out upon the bird. That was the time when the bird swept down upon the house, thrusting a claw under Milu's arm, tearing out his liver. Lono saw this and ran after the bird, but it flew swiftly to a deep pit in the lava on one side of the valley and dashed inside, leaving blood spread among the stones. Lono came, saw the blood, took it, and wrapped it in a piece of tapa cloth and returned to the place where the chief lay almost dead. He poured some medicine into the wound and pushed the tapa and blood inside. Milu was soon healed. The place where the bird hid with the liver of Milu is called to this day Ke'ake o Milu, the liver of Milu. When this death had passed away, he felt very well, even as before his trouble. Then Lono told him that another death threatened him and would soon appear. He must dwell in quietness. For some time, Milu was living in peace and quiet after this trouble. Then one day, the surf Awaipio became very high, rushing from far out even to the sand, and the people entered into the sport of surf riding with great joy and loud shouts. This noise continued day by day, and Milu was impatient of the restraint, and forgot the words of Lono. He went out to bathe in the surf. When he came to the place of the wonderful surf, he let the first and second waves go by, and as the third came near, he launched himself upon it while the people along the beach shouted uproariously. He went out again into deeper water, and again came in, letting the first and second waves go first. As he came to the shore, the first and second waves were hurled back from the shore in a great mass against the wave upon which he was riding. The two great masses of water struck and pounded Milu, whirling and crowding him down while the surfboard was caught in the raging, struggling waters and thrown out toward the shore. Milu was completely lost in the deep water. The people cried, Milu is dead! The chief is dead! The god Kalei thought he had killed Milu. So he with the other poison gods went on to a journey to Manoloa. Kapo and Pua, the poison gods, or gods of death, on the island Maui, found them as they passed and joined the company. They discovered a forest on Molokai, and there as Kupua spirits, or ghost bodies, entered into the trees of the forest, so the trees became the Kupua bodies. They were the medicinal or poison qualities in the trees. Lono remained in Waipio Valley, becoming the ancestor and teacher of all the good healing priests of Hawaii. But Milu became the ruler of the underworld, the place where the spirits of the dead had their home after they were driven away from the land of the living. Many people came to him from time to time. He established ghostly sports like those which his subjects had enjoyed before death. They played the game Kilu with polished coconut shells, spinning them over a smooth surface to strike a post set up in the center. He taught Konane, a game commonly called Hawaiian checkers, but more like the Japanese game of Go. He permitted them to gamble, betting on all kinds of property found in Ghostland. They boxed and wrestled, they leaped from precipices into ghostly swimming pools, they feasted and fought, sometimes attempting to slay each other. Thus they lived the ghost life as they had lived on Earth. Sometimes the ruler was forgotten, and the ancient Hawaiians called the underworld by his name. Milu. The New Zealanders frequently gave their underworld the name Miru. They also supposed that the ghosts feasted and sported as they had done while living. A Visit to the King of Ghosts When any person lay in an unconscious state, 
It was supposed by the ancient Hawaiians that death had taken possession of the body and opened the door for the spirit to depart. Sometimes, if the body lay like one asleep, the spirit was supposed to return to its old home. One of the Hawaiian legends weaves their deep-rooted faith in the spirit world into the expressions of one who seemed to be permitted to visit that ghost land and its king. This legend belonged to the island of Maui and the region near the village Lahaina. Thus was the story told. Kailiohae, the wild dog, had been sick for days and at last sank into a state of unconsciousness. The spirit of life crept out of the body and finally departed from the left eye into a corner of the house, buzzing like an insect. Then he stopped and looked back over the body he had left. It appeared to him like a massive mountain. The eyes were deep caves into which the ghost looked. Then the spirit became afraid and went outside and rested on the roof of the house. The people began to wail loudly, and the ghost fled from the noise to a coconut tree and perched like a bird in the branches. Soon he felt the impulse of the spirit land moving him away from his old home. So he leaped from tree to tree and flew from place to place, wandering toward Kekaa, the place from which the ghosts leave the island of Maui for their home in the permanent spirit land, the underworld. As he came near this doorway to the spirit world, he met the ghost of a sister who had died long before, and to whom was given the power of sometimes turning a ghost back to its body again. She was an Aumakua Huola, a spirit making alive. She called to Kailiohae and told him to come to her house and dwell for a time. But she warned him that when her husband was at home, he must not yield to any invitation from him to enter their house, nor could he partake of any of the food which her husband might urge him to eat. The home and the food would be only the shadows of real things, and would destroy his power of becoming alive again. The sister said, When my husband comes to eat the food of the spirits, and to sleep the sleep of ghosts, then I will go with you, and you shall see all the spirit land of our island, and see the king of ghosts. The ghost sister led Kailiohae into the place of whirlwinds, a hill where he heard the voices of many spirits planning to enjoy all the sports of their former lives. He listened with delight and drew near to the multitude of happy spirits. Some were making ready to go down to the sea for the Hi'inalu, surf riding. Others were already rolling the Ulumaika, the round stone discs for rolling around the ground. Some were engaged in the Mokomoko, or Uma Uma, boxing and the Kula Kula'i, wrestling, and the Honu Honu, pulling with hands, and the Lo'u Lo'u, pulling with hooked fingers, and other athletic sports. Some of the spirits were already grouped in the shade of trees, playing the gambling games in which they had delighted when alive. There was the stone Konane board, somewhat like checkers, and the Pue Pue One, a small sand mound in which was concealed some object, and the Pue Hene Hene, the hidden stone under the piles of kappa and the many other trials of skill which permitted betting. Then, in another place, crowds were gathered around the hulas, the many forms of dancing. These sports were all in the open air and seemed to be full of interest. There was a strange quality which fettered every newborn ghost. He could only go in the direction into which he was pushed by the hand of some stronger power. If the guardian of a ghost struck it on one side, it would move off in the direction indicated by the blow or the push, until spirit strength and experience came and he could go alone. The newcomer, the newcomer desired to join in these games and started to go, but the sister slapped him on the breast and drove him away. 
These were shadow games into which those who entered could never go back to the substantial things of life. Then there was a large grass house inside which many ghosts were making merry. The visitor wanted to join this great company, but the sister knew that if he once was engulfed by this crowd of spirits in this shadow land, her brother could never escape. The crowds of players would seize him like a whirlwind, and he would be unable to know the way he came in or the way out. Kaiohae tried to slip away from his sister, but he could not turn readily. He was still a very awkward ghost, and his sister slapped him back in the way in which she wanted him to go. An island which was supposed to float on the ocean as one of the homes of the Aumakuas, the ghosts of the ancestors, had the same characteristics. The ghosts, Aumakuas, lived on the shadows of all that belonged to the earth life. It was said that a canoe with a party of young people landed on this island of dreams, and for some time enjoyed the food and fruits and sports, but after returning to their homes, could not receive the nourishment of the food of their former lives, and soon died. The legends taught that no ghost passing out of the body could return unless it made the life of the Aumakuas taboo to itself. Soon the sister led her brother to a great field, Stonewall, in which there were such fine grass houses as were built only for chiefs of the highest rank. There she pointed to a narrow passageway into which she told her brother he must enter by himself. This, she said, is the home of Walia, the high chief of the ghosts living in this place. You must go to him. Listen to all he says to you. Say little. Return quickly. There will be three watchmen guarding this passage. The first will ask you, what is the fruit, desire, of your heart? You will answer, Walia. Then he will let you enter the passage. Inside the walls of the narrow way will be the second watchman. He will ask why you come. Again answer, Walia, and pass by him. At the end of the entrance, the third guardian stands holding a raised spear ready to strike. Call to him, Kamakiloa, the Great Death. This is the name of his spear. Then he will ask what you want, and you must reply, to see the chief and he will let you pass. Then again, when you stand at the door of this great house, you will see two heads bending together in the way so that you cannot enter or see the king and his queen. If these heads can catch a spirit coming to see the king without knowing the proper incantations, they will throw that ghost into the Pomilu, the dark spirit world. Watch, therefore, and remember all that is told you. When you see these heads, point your hands straight before you between them, and open your arms, pushing these guards off on each side. Then the Alanui, the great way, will be open for you, and you can enter. You will see the Kahilis, soft, long feather fans, moving over the chiefs. The king will awake and call, Why does this traveler come? You will reply quickly, He comes to see the divine one. When this is said, no injury can come to you. Listen and remember, and you will be alive again. Kailiohai did as he was told with the three watchmen, and each one stepped back, saying, Noah, the taboo is lifted, and he pushed by. At the door he shoved the two heads to the side, and entered the chief's house to the Kaikuwai, the middle, falling on his hands and knees. The servants were waving the kahilis this way and that. There was motion, but no noise. The chief awoke, looked at Kailiohai, and said, Aloha, stranger, come near. Who is the high chief of your land? Then Kailiohai gave the name of his king, and the genealogy from the ancient times of the chiefs dead and in the spirit world. The queen of ghosts arose, and the kneeling spirit saw one more beautiful than any woman in all the island, and he fell on his face before her. The king told him to go back 
and enter his body, and tell his people about troubles near at hand. While he was before the king, twice he heard messengers call to the people that the sports were all over. Anyone not heeding would be thrown into the darkest place of the home of the ghosts when the third call had been sounded. The sister was troubled, for she knew that at the third call the stone walls around the king's houses would close, and her brother would be held fast forever in the spirit land. So she uttered her incantations and passed the guard. Softly she called. Her brother reluctantly came. She seized him and pushed him outside. Then they heard the third call and met the multitude of ghosts coming inland from their sports in the sea and other multitudes hastening homeward from their work and sports on the land. They met a beautiful young woman who called to them to come to her home and pointed to a point in the rock where many birds were resting. The sister struck her brother and forced him down to the seaside where she had her home and her responsibility, for she was one of the guardians of the entrance to the spirit world. She knew well what must be done to restore the spirit to the body, so she told her brother they must at once obey the command of the king. But the brother had seen the delights of the life in the Aumakuas and wanted to stay. He tried to slip away and hide, but his sister held him fast and compelled him to go along the beach with, to his old home and his waiting body. When they came to the place where the body lay, she found a hole in the corner of the house and pushed the spirit through. When he saw the body, he was very much afraid and tried to escape. But the sister caught him and pushed him inside the foot up to the knee. He did not like the smell of the body and tried to rush back, but she pushed him inside again and held the foot fast and shook him and made him go to the head. The family heard a little sound in the mouth and saw a breath moving the breast. Then they knew that he was alive again. They warmed the body and gave a little food. When strength returned, he told his family all about his wonderful journey into the land of ghosts. Kale Pohoa, the Poison God the Bishop Museum of Honolulu has one of the best as well as the most scientifically arranged collections of Hawaiian curios in the world. In it are images of many of the gods of long ago. One of these is a helmeted head made of wickerwork over which has been woven a thick covering of beautiful red feathers bordered with yellow feathers. This was the mighty war god, Kukeli Moku of the great Kamehameha. Another is a squat, rough image crudely carved out of wood. This was Kamehameha's poison god. The ancient Hawaiians were acquainted with the poisons of various kinds. They understood the medicinal qualities of plants and found some of these strange enough to cause sickness and even death. One of the Hawaiian writers said the Opihiava is a poison shellfish. These are bitter and deadly and can be used in putting enemies to death. Kale Puhoa is also a tree in which there is a power to kill. Kamehame's poison god was called Kale Poa because it was cut from the tree which grew in the upland forest on the island of Molake. A native writer says that there was an antidote for the poison of Kale Poha, and he thus describes it, the war god and the poison god were not left standing in the temples like the images of other gods. After being worshipped, were wrapped in kappa and laid away. When the priest wanted Kale Pohoa, he was taken down and anointed with coconut oil and wrapped in a fresh kappa cloth. Then he was set up above the altar and a feast prepared before him, Ava to drink and pig, fish, and poi to eat. Then the priest who had special care of this god would scrape off a little from the wood and put it in an Ava cup. 
and hold the cup before the god, chanting a prayer for the life of the king, the government, and the people. One of the priests would then take the Ava cup, drink the contents, and quickly take food. Those who were watching would presently see a red flush creep over his cheeks, growing stronger and stronger, while the eyes would become glassy and the breath short like that of a dying man. Then the priest would have his lips touched to Meola and have his life restored. Meola was a god with another tree. Makale Poa entered his tree on Molake. Moola entered another tree and became the enemy of the poison god. The priests of the poison god were very powerful in the curious rite of Puleaneane, or praying to death. The Hawaiians said, perhaps the priests of Kalapoa put poison in bananas or in taro. It was believed that they scraped the body of the image and put the pieces in the food of the one they wished to pray to death. There was one chief who was very skillful in waving kahilis or feather fans over anyone and shaking the powder of death into the food from the moving feathers. Another would have scrapings in his cloak and would drop them into whatever food his enemy was eating. The spirit of death was supposed to reside in the wood of the poison god. A very interesting legend was told by the old people to their children to explain the coming of medicinal and poisonous properties into the various kinds of trees and plants. These stories all go back to the time when Milu died and became king of ghosts. They said that after the death of Milu, the gods left Waipio Valley on the island of Hawaii and crossed the channel to the island Maui. These gods had all kinds of power for evil, such as stopping the breath, chilling or burning the body, making headaches or pains in the stomach, or causing palsy or lameness or other injuries, even inflicting death. Hua and Kapo, who are from ancient times, have been worshipped as goddesses, having medicinal power, joined the party when they came to Maui. Then all the gods went up to Monaloa, a place where there was a large and magnificent forest with fine trees, graceful vines and ferns, and beautiful flowers. They all loved this place, therefore they became gods of the forest. Near this forest lived Kaneia Kama, a high chief who was a very great gambler. He had gambled away all his possessions. While he was sleeping, the night of his final losses, he heard someone call, Oh, Kane Iakama, begin your play again. He shouted out in the darkness, I have bet everything. I have nothing left. Then the voice again said, Bet your bones. Bet your bones and see what will happen. When he went to the gambling place the next day, the people all laughed at him, for they knew his goods were all gone. He sat down among them, however, and said, I truly have nothing left. My treasures are all gone, but I have my bones. If you wish, I will bet my body, then I will play with you. The other chief scornfully placed some property on one side and said, That will be of the same value as your bones. They gambled, and he won. The chiefs were angry at their loss and bet again and again. He always won until he had more wealth than anyone on the island. After the gambling days were over, he heard again the same voice saying, Oh, Kaneia Kama, you have done all that I have told you and have become very rich in property and servants. Will you obey me once more? The chief gratefully thanked the god for the aid that he had received 
and said he would obey. The voice then said, Perhaps we can help you to one thing. You are now wealthy, but there is a last gift for you. You must listen carefully and note all I show you. Then this god of the night pointed out that the trees into which the gods had entered when they decided to remain for a time in the forest and explained to him all their different characteristics. He showed him where gods and goddesses dwelt and gave their names. Then he ordered Kame Iakama to take offerings of pigs, fish, coconuts, bananas, chickens, kappas, and all other things used for sacrifice and place them at the roots of these trees into which the gods had entered, the proper offerings for each. The next morning he went into the forest and saw that he had received a very careful description of each tree. He observed attentively the tree shown as the home of the spirit who had become his strange helper. Before night fell, he placed offerings as commanded. As a worshiper, he took each one of these trees for his god, so he had many gods of plants and trees. For some reason not mentioned in the legends, he sent woodcutters to cut down these trees, or at least to cut gods out of them with their stone axes. They began to cut. The cocoa, blood of the trees, as the natives termed the flowing sap, and the chips flying out struck some of the woodcutters and they fell dead. Kane Iakama made cloaks of the long leaves of the Ie Ie vine and tied them around his men so that their bodies could not be touched. Then the work was easily accomplished. The chief kept these images of gods cut from the medicinal trees and could use them as he desired. The most powerful of all these gods was that one whose voice he had heard in the night. To this god he gave the name Kale Puhoa, the one cut by the Poa or stone axe. One account relates that the Poa stone from which the axe was made from the Kale Kui, a celebrated place for finding a very hard lava of fine grain, the very best for making stone implements. The god who had spoken to the chief in his dream was sometimes called Kane Kuanaula, noted Red Kane. The gods were caught by the sacrifices of the chief while they were in their tree bodies before they could change back into their spirit bodies. Therefore, their power was supposed to remain in the trees. It was said that when Kanekulaanaula changed into his tree form, he leaped into it with a tremendous flash of lightning. Thus the great mana, or miraculous power, went into that tree. The strange death which came from the god Kalapuhoa made that god and his priest greatly feared. One of these pieces of this tree fell into a spring at Kaaki, near the Meika, or disc rolling field at Molake. All the people who drank at that spring died. They filled it up, and the chiefs ruled that the people should not keep branches or pieces of the tree for the injury of others. If such pieces were found in the possession of anyone, he should die. Only the carved gods were to be preserved. Kahekili, king of Maui at the time of the accession of Kamehameha, to the sovereignty of the island of Hawaii, had these images in his possession as a part of his household gods. Kamehameha sent a prophet to ask him for one of these gods. Kahekili refused to send one, but told him to wait and he should have the poison god and the government over all the islands. One account records that a small part of the poison one was then given. So after the death 
of Kahekili, Kamehameha did conquer all the islands with their hosts of gods, and Kalepahoa, the poison god, came into his possession. The overthrow of idolatry and destruction of the system of taboos came in 1819, when most of the wooden gods were burned or thrown into ponds and rivers, but a few were concealed by their caretakers. Among these were the two gods now to be seen in the Bishop Museum in Honolulu. Visit Pune and the Dragon. Images of goddesses were clothed in kapei cloth and worshipped in temples. One was Kahawahene, a noted dragon goddess, and the other was Humea, who was also known as Papa, the wife of Wakia, a great ancestor god among the Polynesians. Humea is said to have taken as her husband, Punea, a chief of Oahu. He and his people were going around the island. The surf was not very good, and they wanted to find a better place. At last, they found a fine surf place where a beautiful woman was floating on the sea. She called Pune. This is not a good place for surf. He asked, where is there a place? She answered, I know where there is one far outside. She desired to get Pune. So they swam out in the sea until they were out of sight, nor could they see the sharp peak of the mountains. They forgot everything else but each other. The woman was Kawahene. The people on the beach wailed, but did not take canoes to help them. They swam over to Malakai. Here, they left their surfboards on the beach and went inland. They came to the cave house of the woman. He saw no man inside, nor did he hear any voice. All was quiet. Pune stayed there as a kind of prisoner and obeyed the commands of the woman. She took care of him and prepared his food. They lived as husband and wife for a long time, and at last his real body began to change. Once he went out of the cave. While standing there, he heard voices, loud and confused. He wanted to see what was going on, but he could not go, because the woman had laid her law on him that if he went away, he would be killed. He returned to the cave and asked the woman, What is that noise I heard from the sea? She said, Surf riding, perhaps, or rolling the Marquet stone. Someone is winning, and you heard the shouts. He said, It would be fine for me to see the things you have mentioned. She said, Tomorrow will be a good time for you to go and see. In the morning, he went down to the sea to the place where the people were gathered together and saw many sports. While he was watching, one of the men, Hanole, the brother of his wife, saw him and was pleased. When the sports were through, he invited Pune to go to their house and eat and talk. Hanole asked him, Whence do you come, and what house do you live in? He said, I am from the mountains, and my house is a cave. Hanole meditated, for he had heard of the loss of Pune at Oahu. He loved his brother-in-law and asked, how did you come to this place? Pune told him all the story. Then Honole told him his wife was a goddess. When you return and come near to the place, go very easily and softly, and you will see her in her real nature, as a moho or dragon. But she knows all that you are doing and what we are saying. Now, listen to a parable. Your first wife, Humea, is the firstborn of all the other women. 
Think of the time when she was angry with you. She had been sporting with you. And then she said in a tired way, I want the water. You asked, what water do you want? She said, the water from Paliehu of Manakia. You took a water jar and made a hole so that the water always leaked out. And then you went to the pit of Pele. That woman Pele was very old and blear-eyed so that she could not see you well. And you returned to Haumea. She was that wife of yours. If you escape this Ma'o wife, she will seek my life. It is my thought to save your life so that you can look into the eyes of your first wife. The beautiful dragon woman had told him to cry with a loud voice when he went back to the cave. But when Pune was going back, he went slowly and softly and saw his wife as a dragon and understood the words of Hanole. He tried to hide, but was trembling and breathing hard. His wife heard and quickly changed to a human body and cursed him, saying, You are an evil man, coming quietly and hiding, but I heard your breath when you thought I would not know you. Perhaps I will eat your eyes. When you were talking with Hanole, you learned how to come and to see me. The dragon goddess was very angry, but Pune did not say anything. She was so angry that the hair on her neck stood up, but it was like a whirlwind, soon quiet, and the anger over. They dwelt together, and the woman trusted Pune, and they had peace. One day, Pune was breathing hard, for he was thirsty and wanted the water of the gods. The woman heard his breathing and asked, Why do you breathe like this? He said, I want water. We have dwelt together a long time, and now I need the water. What water is this you want? He said, I must have the water of Paliehu of Mauna Kea, the snow-covered mountain of Hawaii. She said, Why do you want that water? He said, The water of that place is cold and heavy with ice. In my youth, my good grandparents always brought me water from that place for me. Whenever I went, I carried that water with me, and when it was gone, more would be brought to me, and so it has been up to the time that I came to dwell with you. You have water, and I have been drinking it, but it is not the same as the water mixed with ice and heavy. But I would not send you after it, because I know it is far away, and attended with toil unfit for you, a woman. The woman bent her head down, then lifted her eyes and said, Your desire for water is not a hard thing to satisfy. I will go and get the water. Before he had spoken of his desire, he had made a little hole in the water jar, as Hanole had told him that the woman might spend a long time and let him escape. She arose and went away. He also arose and followed. He found a canoe and crossed to Maui. Then he found another boat going to Hawaii, and at last landed at Kau. He went up and stood on the edge of the pit of Pele. Those who were living in the crater saw him and cried out, Here is a man, a husband for our sister. He quickly went down into the crater and dwelt with them. He told all about his journey. Pele heard these words and said, Not very long, and your wife will be here coming after you and there will be a great battle. But we will not let you go, or you will be killed, because she is very angry against you. She has held you, the husband of our sister Humea. She should find her own husband, 
and not take what belongs to another. You stay with us, and at the right time, you can go back to your wife. Kahawahene went to Palahu, but could not fill the water jar. She poured the water in and filled the jar, but when the jar was lifted, it became light. She looked back and saw the water lying on the ground, and her husband far away at the pit of Pele. Then she became angry and called all the dragons of Molokai, Lanahe, Maui, Kaloave, and Hawaii. When she had gathered all the dragons, she went to Kalohu and stood on the edge of the crater and called all the people below, telling them to give her her husband. They refused to give Pune up. Where is your husband? This is the husband of our sister. He does not belong to you, O oh mischief maker. Then the dragon goddess said, If you do not give up this man, of a truth, I will send quickly all my people and fill up this crater and capture all your fires. The dragons threw their drooling saliva in the pit and almost destroyed the fire of the pit where Pele lived, leaving Kamohalai's place untouched. Then the fire moved and began to rise with great strength, burning up all the saliva of the dragons. Kehawahene and the rest of the dragons could not stand the heat even a little while, but the fire caught them and killed a large part of them in that place. They tried to hide in the clefts of the rocks. The earthquakes opened the rocks, and some of the dragons hid. But fire followed the earthquakes and the fleeing dragons. Kahawahene ran and leaped down the precipice into a fish pond called by the name of the shadow, or Aka of the dragon, Loka'a, the shadow lake. So she was imprisoned in the pond, husbandless, scarcely escaping with her life. When she went back to Molokai, she meant to kill Hinole because she was very angry for his act in aiding Pune to escape. She wanted to punish him. But Hinole saw the trouble coming from his sister, so arose and leaped into the sea, becoming a fish in the ocean. When he dove into the sea, Kahawanahi went down after him and tried to find him in the small and large coral caves. He became the Hanalia, a fish dearly loved by the fishermen of the islands. The dragon goddess continued seeking, swimming swiftly from place to place. Onoana saw her passing back and forth and said, What are you seeking, O Kehawahene? She said, I want Henole. Onoana said, Unless you listen to me, you cannot get him. Just as when you went to Hawaii, you could not get your husband from Pele. You go and get the vine and aloha and come back and make a basket and put it down in the sea. After a while, dive down and you will find that man has come inside. Then, catching. The woman took the vine, made the basket, came down and put it into the sea. She left it there a little while, then dove down. There was no henole in the basket, for she saw him swimming along outside of the basket. She went up, waited a while, came down again, and saw him still swimming outside. This she did again and again, until her eyes were red because she could not catch him. Then she was angry and went to Oonana and said, O slave, I will kill you today. Perhaps you told the truth, but I have been deceived and will chase you until you die. 
Oanana said, Perhaps we should talk before I die. I want you to tell me just what you have done. Then I will know whether you followed directions. Tell me in a few words. Perhaps I forgot something. The dragon said, I am tired of your words, and I will kill you. Then Oanana said, Suppose I die. What will you do to correct any mistakes you have made? Then she told how she had taken vines and made a basket and used it. Oanana said, I forgot to tell you that you must get some sea eggs and crabs, pound and mix them together, and put them inside the basket. Put the mouth of the basket down. Leave it for a while. Then dive down and find your brother inside. He will not come out, and you can catch him. This is the way the henna lay is caught to this day. After she had caught her brother, she took him to the shore to kill him, but he persuaded her to set him free. This she did, compelling him ever after to retain the form of the fish Hinale. Kehawaini then went to the island Maui and dwelt in a deep pool near the royal town of Lahaine. After Pele had her battle with the dragons and Pune escaped according to the directions of Hinole, he returned to Oahu and saw his wife, Hamea, a woman with many names, as if she were the embodiment of many goddesses. After Pune disappeared, Kau became the new chief of Oahu. Pune went to live in the mountains above Kalihaiuka. One day, Hamea went out fishing for crabs at Hiaye, below the precipice of Kula, where she was accustomed to go. Pune came to a banana plantation, ate, and lay down to rest. He fell fast asleep, and the watchmen of the new chief found him. They took his loincloth and tied his hands behind his back, bringing him thus to Kao, who killed him and hung the body in the branches of a breadfruit tree. It is said that this was at Wakahalulu, just below the steep diving rocks of the Nuanu stream. When Homea returned from gathering moss and fish to her home in Kalihauka, she heard of the death of her husband. She had taken an akela vine, made a pau or a skirt of it, and tied it around her when she went fishing, but she forgot all about it, and as she hurried down to see the body of her husband, all the people turned to look at her and shouted out, This is the wife of the dead man. She found Pune hanging on the branches. Then she made that breadfruit tree open. Leaving her pau on the ground where she stood, she stepped inside the tree and bade it close about her and appear the same as before. The akali, of which the pau had been made, lay where it was left, took root, and grew into a large vine. The fat of the body of Pune fell down through the branches, and the dogs ate below the tree. One of these dogs belonged to the chief Kau. He came back to the house, played with the chief, then leaped, caught him by the throat, and killed him. Black Clock Audio Tales is edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer in Badger's Drift Studios in Portland, Oregon. You can contact us at pgttcm.com, on Facebook at Black Clock Audio Tales, and... Just look for us, Black Clock Audio Tales. Thank you.